We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Wool Erskine booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, uh, another jam-packed show. Hope you hang around for it. Uh, feel free to get involved, as always. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and uh, your thoughts. Uh, you know, there's really uh, only a couple of stories uh, that are going on today. Uh, experts are calling for a uh, inquiry, a, uh, I guess like a committee to take a look at uh, the pandemic and how we responded to it, which is probably a good idea considering, you know, we might get one of these again one day. Uh, but the other big uh, news story of the day uh, in Ottawa, we told you this yesterday, a couple of days ago, they're talking about a cabinet shuffle uh, in the Trudeau government. Obviously, um, not the best of times for the current government. A lot of stuff uh, blowing up at once, a lot of situations of ministers having no idea what is going on. Uh, and, and throwing other institutions under the bus when we fact in here, uh, when in fact we hear that, uh, uh, the minister's offices were notified, whether it's the Bernardo, whether it ceases, whether whatever, uh, and the information just isn't getting to the top. Interesting piece I read yesterday in regard, and we're going to talk about this later in the show, uh, how Canada is just failing economically. Like we used to be like number three, now we're like number 15. Uh, we're just not being productive. We're not generating every, any revenue. And they said that, uh, we'll talk about this later in the show, they said that the Liberal government's plan to expand the economy really only was uh, expanding the population by bringing in more immigration because we obviously need people to fill jobs. And the other was by expanding the size of the civil service. And we know that the government has increased in size by over 30% since the prime minister took office. And we certainly know that we're up to and in, in targeting for a half a million immigrants per year, uh, not including students and such, over the next year or so. So uh, obviously these plans are in play and crippling housing, crippling health care and such. So um, uh, it's just fascinating how things are changing and how the tone has changed. And all of a sudden now we have uh, federal ministers dropping like flies uh, with, I think, it's, I think we're up to four today uh, that have announced that uh, they're not uh, going to run for reelection again. Uh, chatter of, of cabinet shuffle for uh, quite a while now. And remember when the chatter was, well, I wonder if the prime minister is going to stay on. Now it looks like he's staying, but the cabinet's going, which is very odd, I find, because a lot of the things that uh, were unhappy with the cabinet ministers uh, about, including not knowing what the left hand or the right hand is doing, is the same thing that's happening with the prime minister. He didn't know about Bernardo either. He didn't know about CSIS and their uh, uh, investigations about election interference and what they had discovered. Uh, again, both situations those offices had been notified months in advance, and the the, the, the ministers just not just not getting the uh, the memo, I guess. So uh, a lot of shuffles going on. Uh, earlier on today, Mackenzie Gray from Global was on uh, with Shona Thompson, and here's what uh, he had to say uh, in regard to the shuffle that is coming up. This is a part of the plan. The prime minister had gone to his cabinet members before and said, "Look, if you're not going to run in the next election." Uh, you're out, and I need to know now. And this is the same thing he did before the last election. We saw a few uh, cabinet ministers at that point in time say, I'm not going to run. 
So those three cabinet ministers you just mentioned, they're all out. They're not going to be in cabinet as of tomorrow. Uh, so that leaves a few holes for Justin Trudeau uh, to replace. There's going to be at a minimum three new people coming in. Uh, but it's our expectation that it's going to be a lot bigger than that, not just shuffling people who are in cabinet around, but also dropping a lot of people. That's something we haven't seen the prime minister do a bunch. He has been relatively uh, loyal to most of the people who are in cabinet. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more cutthroat Justin Trudeau uh, when it comes to uh, you know shuffling, establishing the issues uh, that are important to the government. And uh, Marco Mendicino and what his future is. Obviously, he's become the poster boy for uh, a cabinet shuffle. Every time you hear the story, it's his picture that's up on the screen. Here's what Mackenzie had to say in regard to Marco Mendicino. The thing I'd say for for Mendicino would be, you know, you got to look how he got to the position that he was in. You know, in 2015, he was one of the attack dogs for the liberals. You know, he wasn't a cabinet minister. He was someone that would come on the political shows. Uh, someone who'd stand up in the House of Commons, be very aggressive, and, you know, take a lot of crap for Justin Trudeau. Uh, and he was rewarded and moved up into this rank. Uh, I don't know if he would be someone they'd want to drop. I think there's also some consideration about, you know, the Italian-Canadian angle, too. Uh, there's some votes that I think, especially in Toronto, the Liberals would like to keep. It got a little bit more difficult. Uh, but if he doesn't want to run, he's not going to be in cabinet. So that, I think, is going to be probably the determining factor. I want to read you a note here. I was on social media this morning, and uh, this is uh, a post from Adam Old, uh, Adam Oldfield. And I've known Adam for years, uh, in and out of this business, and 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 certainly know him as a champion of the community and a, a champion that that helps other people, and 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 really tries his best to be the best that he can be. On any given time, at any given time, uh, you also hear him on with Bill Kelly as part of Tech Talk. Uh, he instructs at Mohawk and such, and of course, president of Acuman Duck Cleaning Services right here in Hamilton. And Adam penned a note, and I want to read you a uh, just a little bit of it. And this was on Facebook this morning, and he had sent this out to various councillors and uh, provincial, federal, and municipal uh, government. And he said, I'm writing you today with a heavy heart and a deep sense of concern. As a resident and an active member of the Hamilton community, I've observed a deteriorating state of cleanliness and safety on our streets, which has reached a peak today on July 25th, 2023. I've attached a video that paints a vivid picture of the dire state we are in. It captures a disturbing incident where an individual seemingly under the influence of drugs is going through the trash and wreaking havoc in our neighborhood on garbage day. If this act were committed by a teenager, they would be slapped with a mischief charge. If someone like me did it, I might be looking at a vandalism charge. Yet this behavior continues to be overlooked overlooked and further accepted. More alarmingly, members of our community have faced uh, direct threats. Several of my neighbors have reported incidents where they are were confronted and some even physically assaulted by individuals, with some of these attacks going as far as following them to their homes. That's just a portion of the note. And I wanted to bring Adam on to explain where he's coming from. And, and not only that, a concern that we are all feeling right now. And again, as I pointed out, this has been happening in towns and cities across the land, big, small, uh, urban centers, what have you. And the poll question of the day, basically, uh, how many tents? What do you do? What's the best way moving forward? 85% in this unofficial poll on Twitter 
uh, with CHML, 85%, uh, no tents, please. Where do we go? Adam, thanks for taking the time and writing a very courageous letter. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> I really appreciate you having me join you today. And we're not talking tech today, that's for sure. Um, so thank you for having me. So what, what motivated you to do this, to write this? Uh, this morning, uh, it's been going on. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, I mean, months for that matter, it, it has. It, it's escalated. I mean, my, I live in downtown. I'm proud in downtown. I'm not going anywhere. My business is downtown. I'm in the Ward 3, both where I live and where my business is. Um, and today was one of those moments, Scott, that I just feel every day it starts to compound. It's It, it seems to be getting a little worse. Uh, I've had experiences myself. My vehicle's been broken into. Uh, I've, 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 had, I've seen it happen. I, I've contacted the police. Three, five hours later, I get a knock and they arrive and I'm like, they're, they're gone. I don't know who it is, but obviously the urgency isn't there. Today was a bit of a, a moment because I saw uh, in not only what I saw, but what took place was the, uh, the aggressiveness that I've seen really start to take place. And the aggressiveness to the degree of now it's a, it's a concern. And uh, what I'm referring to is is uh, assaulting or, uh, uh, you know, I'd like, you know, do you have any money or if they go through or approach your property and you say, please, can you leave my property? They get very angry, very vulgar. Uh, and today was one of those moments. I, I, I came out garbage day, as, as you read, and uh, my entire street was Oh, like it was just a, a complete someone. And, and I was watching it happen. It wasn't like, oh, no, what happened? It was uh, blatantly in front of me taking place. And, uh, and and the moment happened where it occurred in front of myself, in front of my home. And I I, I approached the individual and I said, you know, uh, please uh, do not touch our trash. Uh, quit tearing it apart. It, it escalated to an angry uh, uh, moment, which could have been physical. Um, the gentleman was ev evidently intoxicated, high on on whatever the uh, the, mm -hmm. the the meth drug or I, I said meth. That's not fair. Whatever it was. Um, and there is a point where, it, uh, you know, I'm watching this happen and I'm now concerned. We have young families that have moved in. I've lived in the area. I'm proud of the area of where I am. And we've done a lot to try and, you know, we want to uh, beautify and otherwise. And I understand the, the sensitivity to it is that we have to be caring on one element. And at the same time, we have to be aware of the fact that this is our neighborhood. These are our children. And we want to continue to thrive in our community. And it got very, very close today, Scott, that uh, I might have mm. been calling you with my one phone call from a jail cell. Um, you've been there, you've seen this, you've seen the increase, your thoughts on solutions or even the response from city or lack thereof or any level of government. Well, I think we keep talking, but I'm not seeing a lot of action. And I yeah. think if, if I could suggest, and I know that there's a lot of discussions and there's been, you know, uh, there was recently in the last month, a, a, a rally where there was a big, here's what we're going to do uh, in regards to response to this concern. I mean, I believe there should be an enforcement strategy and I know it's been discussed. And again, everyone likes to talk, but this is escalated to, in my opinion, this is becoming a crisis. Uh, and the enforcement strategy is the point you brought up from the surveys, from the comments of the individuals in the community, that this, it needs to be actionable. It doesn't need to be talkable. And, and there needs to be a real move towards how are we making our communities safe? And, and again, I don't think this is so much more about, well, there's tents and, and, and homelessness. I kind of accepted that there is a moment of like, well, you know what? They need shelter. They need a place. Mm -hmm. But now it's becoming very aggressive. And that's the concern, Scott, is, you know, uh, I'm down from Beamer Park. 
they're washing their clothes the, uh, in, in the sinks. They're, yeah. The children, uh, you know, syringes in the park. This is no longer a situation of, well, we can all work together, live together. Uh, there is a, a high active concern for the community aggressively. And it's, it's going to be very dangerous, I think, if it's not addressed. Uh, if you hear back from anybody or get a response from any of the note that you or notes that you have written on this, uh, let us know. I'd be interested to uh, to see what it is. But yeah, it, it appears that we're looking for ways to accommodate as opposed to solve this issue. And uh, and obviously, it's not an easy feat. But man, as you're as you're pointing out, uh, where do we go from here? Something needs to be done. Adam, thanks so much for taking the time. Much appreciated. Keep in touch. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Adam Oldfield with us, Hamiltonian, loyal Hamiltonian businessman here, teaches at Humber College, on with Bill Kelly with Tech Talk. You know him, you love him, and he's concerned about the same thing that we're all concerned about, but what do we do? Uh, Many have suggested the tents that we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic to at least help, like the mobile hospitals. Are we seeing anything like that? It's hard to accept that, that it appears nothing is going on. Uh, it seems uh, in the last little while we've been talking a lot about school boards and some of the bizarre scenarios that go on um, in this uh, in the province with regard to certain school boards, and uh, and it has caused the uh, the education minister to comment a couple of times, uh, and now again uh, the Ontario education minister says his office will review the circumstances that has led to a, the recent death of a principal who had filed a lawsuit against the Toronto District School Board for failing to protect him after a confrontation during a diversity training session. Stephen Lecce said in a statement Monday evening that he's asked his staff to review what happened and bring options uh, to reform professional training and strengthen accountability on school boards so this never happens again. Uh, he filed a lawsuit against the school board, alleging he was uh, implicit, implicitly referred to as a racist and a white supremacist in a professional development session by an outside consultant, and the staff didn't stop this harassment. To speak more about all of this and how we got here, Colin DeMello with his Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief. He is here now. Colin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. This is a very odd story, very tragic story, Colin. Give us the backstory. What happened here? Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like a really tragic case in which uh, the TDSB was trying to, um, you know, give some of their teachers uh, some some training on anti-black racism in the spring of 2021. And and, and apparently, according to some reports, uh, this retired principal had challenged some of the comments that were being made, and he was uh, singled out during these sessions and accused of supporting white supremacy. Uh, you know, the the lawsuit that he has against the TDSB uh, claims that he began sick leave after that training session was diagnosed with anxiety uh, secondary to a traumatic workplace event. And he also alleged that the TDSB had failed to investigate the workplace harassment claim and then retaliated by disinviting him from a graduation for a program that he helped create and then revoked a temporary contract offer as well. So it sounds like there was, you know, quite a lot of um, insult on top of injury. Certainly his lawyer um, argues that uh, all of the events led to a a severe mental distress uh, leading to this former principal taking his own life. And now there are calls for, you know, the provincial government to get to the bottom of this to try to understand exactly what happened here. The education minister, Stephen Lecce, is saying, look, no 
staff member in any school board should ever be subject to harassment while they're at their place of work. Um, and he said that, you know, what happened here underscores a need for, in his words, greater accountability of school boards and the necessity to ensure that professional training is free from harassment and intimidation. So we'll see what the minister does next. But as of right now, it seems like the Ministry of Education wants to, you know, further investigate to figure out exactly what happened. And apparently this teacher initially from the United States connections to Buffalo. Yeah, I, I believe so. Uh, I, I mean, you know, ultimately what, what is going to be really interesting for the Ministry of Education here is the fact that, as you mentioned this off the top, we've been seeing a number of these kinds of incidents happening with a lot mm -hmm. of school boards that the Ministry of Education is now having to deal with that doesn't really you know, deal at all with the actual uh, brass tacks issues of education in the classroom, right? We all remember in Halton, there was that teacher who was wearing uh, prosthetic uh, breasts into the mm -hmm. classroom in York region. Um, the, the Catholic school board there had refused to raise the pride flag. In Peel region, the, the Ford government was forced to take over the Peel district school board over accusations of anti-black racism. And here we have the TDSB facing these accusations that a teacher was, um, you know, harassed and a accused of white supremacy. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a shift in a lot of these school boards. Maybe these are smaller, uh, isolated issues that because they receive disproportionate media attention, make it seem like it's all part of some kind of a trend. But certainly for the Ministry of Education, uh, it does present new challenges within the education system um, about, you know, how to be able to provide frontline teachers with that diversity, inclusion, and sensitivity training without singling them out and making them feel like they are part of the problem. That will ultimately, I, I believe, be a part of what the Minister of Education will want to try to see out of this. You know, a presentation in a meeting room is one thing, but to ban somebody from uh, ceremonies and such, that just almost seems vindictive. Uh, um, apparently, this started with him in the topic or uh, somehow came out that Canada was more racist than the United States, and I guess since he had been there, he disagreed with that, and then it went from there? I believe so. Um, I, I mean, all of this had to deal with these equity sessions that were coordinated by the TDSB and provided by this one institute called the Kojo Institute. And it was during those equity sessions that something he said uh, led to some kind of, you know, discord and disagreement leading to people pointing the finger at, at him. Uh, ultimately, some of these allegations have to be tested in court. Um, you know, I, I assume that all of this will still be proceeding, uh, regardless of, um, you know, the fact that uh, the, the the principal, the former principal in question had taken his own life, uh, because obviously the family um, and his lawyer will want to try to get to the bottom of exactly what happened here. Because ultimately, you know, if these sessions are going to be uh, instrumental to the education system, as you know, we we see in a lot of workplaces this focus on diversity, inclusion, and equity, and and you know just the idea that these training sessions are not uncommon. Um, the education system, at least the education minister, will want to make sure that they are free of any kind of harassment, and and they truly become open spaces for people to discuss what their points of view are, maybe be corrected on their points of view if they're wrong, without being bullied or harassed, as you know is the allegation in this case.
And as you said, and I alluded to earlier, Colin, I mean, this may have not have, have gotten a lot of people's attention, but the fact is these sorts of things seems to keep happening uh, with school boards, with the examples that you have just mentioned. Any idea what the government can do here, the, the province can do here to kind of monitor these school boards and at least keep an eye that, uh, that they're holding up to, uh, to certain standards? Yeah, well, the, the province actually already did that uh, in the uh, in the spring. The Ford government tabled and passed legislation that will give the government greater control over a lot of these school boards, because what they want to do is they want to align a lot of their priorities, uh, align them with provincial priorities and really make sure that, you know, education of kids is the first and foremost priority of a lot of these school boards. And the other uh, the other stuff is a bit uh, secondary. So th- this you know, uh, uh, places onto the superintendents of school boards and those who lead those school boards, uh, it places on them a greater burden of responsibility to ensure that they are aligning their school boards with provincial priorities and making sure that, you know, they have the qualifications that they need to be able to, um, to, to be able to roll out the province's vision, but also, uh, to be able to, you know, keep on track with what the province's expectations are of the school system itself. So the province has already done that, but we haven't really seen it uh, play out in real time. So this might be a, mm. a really good test case of of how the province might exert its greater control over some of these school boards. When will he? When will we hear more on this, Colin? Obviously, uh, the minister has asked for more information. Any idea when that would happen? Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of these tend to happen kind of behind the scenes, right? The minister will likely be uh, working on this with the school board um, directly. I mean, there are lots of provincial bureaucrats as well that would be appointed to to uh, oversee something like this. So I would assume that over the next few weeks um, or maybe even months, we'll get a firmer uh, idea of exactly what's, what's happening here. Uh, but there will be a lot of attention being paid to this specifically because, you know, to, to have you, you typically hear of students perhaps being yeah. you know, pushed to the brink and taking their own lives. You don't really hear this of, of staff. And so this is a really concerning situation that perhaps a lot of other staff of the TDSB will also want to know exactly what happened here. So the pressure is on, um, you know, but it really will be incumbent on, on Stephen Lecce, the education minister, to set the pace on when he wants that information to come back and how public he wants that information to be. Colin DeMello with his Global News, Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. As always, Colin, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're not going to like this when uh, we bring Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, back on. And he tells you about uh, more money going out in the form of bonuses. We've talked about this before. We've talked about overspending, all of that sort of thing. And when you consider where the country is right now, it's um, it's just it's breathtaking. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has just uh, dished out almost twenty seven million dollars in bonuses for twenty twenty two, and the average compensation paid to its execs rose to about six hundred ninety seven thousand dollars. To talk more about all of this, Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and here now, Franco. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on. You know, this well is just filled with fish, Franco. Every time you put a line in, you seem to get something here. Uh, again, considering where Canadians are, uh, is it not at least good uh, public relations to hold back on bonuses while the rest of the country is suffering the way they are? 
Yeah, no kidding, right? This is the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, folks. Like, if you go on their website, you'll see that they are driven by one goal, housing affordability for all. Okay, that sounds like a pretty noble goal, but Canadians can't afford homes, right? We've been going through a housing affordability crisis for at least the last couple of years now. And when we threw out this access to information request, we found that they've given $75 million in bonuses out to 90% of their workforce in the last three years, $75 million in bonuses. Well, why are 90% of their workforce getting bonuses when Canadians can't even afford to break into the housing market? We've talked about this several times, Franco, and, and I've asked you, what what is the criteria? What is it that a government employee has to do? What sort of, because these are usually performance bonuses. In the private sector, if you go above what you're, you, know, you were predicted to do, you'll gain a bonus. What warrants a bonus here? Well, that's a great question. And remember, more than 90% of the CMHC workforce was getting a bonus each of the years that we asked an access to information request. So 2020, 2021, and 2022, you had 90% of the workforce plus getting a bonus. So what are the performance requirements? I don't know. And I've said this before, I think on your show, show up to work at least once a week with the shoes tied and it looks like they're getting a bonus. It sure looks like their bonuses in Ottawa, though, are participation ribbons, not actual bonuses. Now, you mentioned the private sector, right? Because in the private sector, people are rewarded for bonuses when they do a good job, but they're held accountable for failures with pay cuts and pink slips. The problem with the current situation going on in Ottawa is that the government only likes one side of the equation. They only like showering employees with bonuses, but really nobody's held accountable. Almost nobody gets fired in Ottawa. Pay cuts are just as rare. And the only thing that happens is the ballooning size and cost of the bureaucracy, all paid for by the little guy, the struggling taxpayer. And to add to this, as we've talked about before, the size of the government is increased uh, under this government. So uh, even the new employee, everybody's getting bonuses. Well, yeah, the size of the government has increased, right? We've seen the number of bureaucrats added since Trudeau has taken power as prime minister go up by 40%. Trudeau has added an extra 98,000 bureaucrats under his reign, uh, a 40% increase. The obvious question is, uh, are you getting a 40% increase in the value of services from Ottawa? <laughs> no, maybe 40% longer wait time, but not 40% more value. And, and you know, this the problem is, is that it's not just the bonuses at the CMHC. The Bank of Canada handed out $20 million in bonuses last year, even though it failed to do its one job and keep inflation low. You have within the department essentially handing out uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in bonuses, even though departments are failing to meet half of their own performance targets. And I mean, in the real world, like, let's get real. If you fail to do your job, you might be shown the door. You're certainly not given a huge bonus check each and every year. You know, uh, considering all the work you're doing here, Franco, trying to get this uh, information and such, it might be easier for you look into, uh, to look into who didn't get a bonus, a government bonus this year. It might be easier, shorter list. Yeah, we'll be saving on uh, paper costs, hey? But hey, let me just put something out there uh, on a good note here. We have heard the official opposition in response to uh, what we've been putting out say, Mr. Polyev, say that he would cancel um, the bonuses for failing government authorities. Okay, so that's good talk. Let's hold him accountable if he's ever given the chance. Uh, but that is good talk. We've also heard Freeland say that she would work with the Crown Corporation to find more than a billion dollars in savings. And I don't know about you, but I think the lowest of the low-hanging fruit to cut would be end the bonuses 
uh, for some of these failing crown corporations like the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation or like the Bank of Canada. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, dish, uh, dishing out bonuses in 2022. Uh, executives average pay 600 over $697,000. Franco, thank you for the time. Keep going. Go get them. <laughs> thank you so much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As we move towards a net zero future, opportunities to increase the generation of emission-free electricity and industrial heat are becoming a key part of energy planning in Canada, uh, particularly when it comes to the deployment of small nuclear reactors. We've all heard, also heard the same with uh, liquid natural gas. Ontario planning to build four of these small modular reactors uh, at the Darlington site. Uh, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, Alberta have all indicated intentions to develop their own projects. But while we in Canada are positioned to become a leader in the development and deployment of the small nuclear re- reactors, is this the future? Let's bring in Heather Exner Perot, Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute and is with us now. Heather, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thanks. Heather, how concerned are you or are you concerned that where we are in in our goals and such and, and obviously uh, trying to move towards more renewable energy, how, how is the electricity system, uh, is it prepared for what we are uh, moving forward to with electric vehicles and just more electrification in general? Well, I think there's pretty good consensus that we're not prepared Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have aging infrastructure to begin with. We have a growing economy and now we want to add, you know, electrify everything to reduce demand on uh, fossil fuels. And so we need to build out a lot more nuclear, uh, a lot more renewables, a lot more everything. And so now the question is, you know, how long will that take? Um, what will be the regulatory process? Where will we get the investment? Um, so, yeah, every, everyone's concerned about that. And, and you know, 2050 is not that far away. So we remember back in the day, are those old enough to remember when Pickering, these sites went up and, and were uh, became active and went online. There was some concern initially uh, how safe they were and such, but obviously the record speaks for itself over the years, the decades that these uh, have been uh, have been in use. And then it seemed to sort of uh, subside the, in, the interest in nuclear. And, and now it is coming back. Tell us about the small nuclear reactors, what the difference is with these. Yeah, so we all know what happened with nuclear story it was, you know, Chernobyl certainly, you know, put a damper mm-hmm. on things um, uh, through Mile Island. And then there were starting to be stricter regulations. There should be more activism against nuclear in the 80s. And then, you know, what was left of it out west, you know, kind of Fukushima um, in Japan there in 2011, kind of destroyed that confidence there too. In the meantime, though, India, Russia, China, a lot of the global south has still been developing it. But in west, it, it really atrophied. But now that we have these, you know, um, net zero goals, low carbon goals, we're looking, you know, that renewables are, are frankly, they are intermittent. That's a, it's a deal breaker in many cases. Uh, we don't have the critical minerals for all of them. So we need a variety of, of sources. And nuclear is starting to look pretty good again. So the you know, criticism of nuclear is that it's, you know, maybe not safe and maybe expensive. And so the small modular reactor is meant to address those. Easier to finance, cheaper to build, uh, easier to site. Uh, and you could do it with some efficiency by making them modular. And is our safety concerns alleviated with this type of reactor? 
So we're calling these the Gen 4 or advanced reactors, and they do have many improvements. You can imagine, you know, all the things in technology that improved since the 80s, and nuclear technology has improved too. So with the this fourth generation of reactor, they have what we call inherent passive safety systems. So that you that you don't need a person or or a system, but by the laws of physics, um, you know, they're being developed where they can't melt down, they can't have huge accidents. And so if something went wrong, there would be, you know, the inherent, you know, in the design, in the physics of it would, ha- would cause it to shut down or to not to melt down. So, yes, there have been great improvements in the safety of it. Also, when they are a little bit smaller, you can stack them like you, you can have one or you can have four. Um, and so, you know, the problems with one wouldn't be as great as, you know, a huge one gigawatt reactor, for example. Is this the future as opposed to building more sites like Darlington or Pickering? So I, I think it'll be a combination. It's just giving you one more tool uh, in the tool belt. And again, you know, we do think there'll be some cost savings by having these small modular reactors where you can mostly factory build them and then assemble them on site. And then you can make three or four. Um, you know, with Pickering, we're doing four. Uh, there was an X-Energy model just announced for Washington where they might do a dozen and even smaller modular, uh, a smaller reactor. But, you know, you can stack them up. They're meant to be stackable. So you can really fit the needs of exactly how many megawatts that you need. So for me, nuclear, yeah, nuclear is the future. It's by far the most energy-dense source of energy, you know, that we have in the universe. Um, and so it's more, you know, a, a better source even than fossil fuels and, and far more, far less land-intensive, resource-intensive than, than renewables. Uh, obviously, you talked about con- uh, safety concerns, Chernobyl, Chernobyl, Japan, what have you. But I remember reading, especially with the Japan situation, like wrong reactor, wrong place. Um, is, is, are you confident these are safe? Yeah, so so, so it, it, exactly that, wrong, wrong reactor, wrong place. And I think, again, we, we've made some advances in the last few decades. And yeah. having, a smaller, having a smaller reactor... Um, and siting them more properly, you know, again, we can put them in more places. And, you know, one thing that we're all talking about the 300 megawatt at, at Pickering, but for me, the really exciting opportunity in Canada are the micro reactors where you can put them in remote communities, you can put them at remote mines, you can put them in the oil sands, you can, uh, you know, have them off grid for heavy industry where they provide industrial heat as well as electricity. And that's been the really hard ones, hmm. you know, hard to abate sectors is because you really need high heat for fertilizer or for, for chemicals or, or for cement. Now nuclear is starting to be able to provide that. Um, and again, some of these, more, you know, there might be 50 megawatts or, or, or no, 60 megawatts. So quite small, but they don't have the wire requirements. Um, you know, again, they're, they don't need to be refueled. Like they can go a decade, eight, 10 years without being refueled. You can bury them. Uh, they can be monitored autonomously. So, so they were, you know, the the information age, the knowledge age is catching up with nuclear, and we're starting mm. to see some really exciting things. Heather Exner Perot with us, senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute, small modular reactors, part of the puzzle to get us to net zero in the future. Heather, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know about how the tone has changed towards the Chinese Communist Party here in Canada. Uh, the two Michaels, uh, allegations of election interference, the calls for a public inquiry. And then most recently, an ex-Mountie accused of conspiracy uh, for being a hired gun in a campaign Canada once 
actually supported, and this is the RCMP officer who has been recently uh, arrested and is still in custody, actually, and was supposed to be in court today. To talk more about all of this, Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald laurier Institute, and here now. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am good, Scott, and it's not quite as uh, hot here in Ottawa as it is down your way. Yeah, that humid here, that's for sure. So, Charles, the more I read about this, the more I'm thinking this is going to be a real hard case to prove, simply because at one point, Canada actually, uh, I don't know if they gave permission, but certainly the nod to go ahead and do this and and go after uh, Chinese Canadians here in Canada that the Chinese Communist Party uh, wanted back home. Uh, Update us on this and your thoughts so far. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I uh, you know, we don't have a lot of details about the case, um, what laws exactly he has uh, violated. This man called Bill uh, Miker, they say that he was engaged in preparatory acts for the benefit of a foreign entity and conspiracy. It seems that Mr. Miker, and just today we've heard that there's a, a co-conspirator that's been charged by the name of uh, Kim Marsh, um, you know, that they were contracted by some sort of entities connected, presumably, to the Chinese Ministry of State Security through um, the embassies and consulates here in Canada to engage in investigations of uh, where the monies of certain persons are um, located. So that's their expertise that both of these RCMP officers had developed in the course of their serving Canada in the Mounties, which was financial fraud and investigations of uh, money laundering and that kind of thing. So one assumes, and you know, as I say, we don't know the details and everybody is innocent until proven guilty, but that these gentlemen had skills that the Chinese government wanted to use to be able to engage in economic coercion to get people who had fled China and come here to Canada, um, back to China to I guess, turn over their money and face uh, Chinese justice. So the question really is, you know, were the RCMP officers um, actually uh, aware of the implications of what they were doing or were they simply, you know, taking on a contract, finding out about uh, about uh, money that had been uh, stored away somewhere out of sight and then provided the information to the Chinese government. Is that illegal? Uh, evidently, um, you know, the charges suggest that it is. Um, and again, as I mentioned, uh, this was a cooperation between Canada and China at one point, I guess, dating back to, to 2016 or so. Uh, why did uh, we or the prime minister initially think this was a good idea to allow China this? Was it sold as something else, this this uh, operation? Well, you know, at one time we were considering a bilateral extradition treaty with China, which I thought would be a terrible idea. I mean, the question really is if people who uh, commit financial fraud in China or, you know, um, steal all the funds from their factory and and then uh, get on the plane for Toronto, um, you, you know, should they be allowed to to stay in Canada without facing any consequences? Because they can't be prosecuted in Canada. You know, we don't prosecute people for crimes that have been committed outside of our country, except in the case of um, pedophilia and um, 
organized uh, criminal activity, transnational organized crime. So, you know, the gist of it is they get here and then uh, they're they're safe from Chinese justice because we won't extradite people back to China because, um, you know, they don't have due process of law and engage in torture and interrogation. So, you know, it, it is it is a, an issue that we don't want to become a friendly place for for people to um, seek refuge from uh, legitimate uh, Chinese charges if they have uh, engaged in illegal activities in China and somehow or other managed to make it here to Canada. All of this comes around to uh, more alleged interference by the Chinese Communist Party in Canadian activity, whether it's elections, what have you. Uh, what about the Prime Minister's response to this, considering a Mountie was involved? Does this speed up any of the action for uh, um, a, a registry or speed up any action towards a public inquiry on this? Well, I would hope so. I mean, you know, obviously, if the Chinese government needs information about persons in Canada, they're supposed to arrange that through the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Office in Beijing and uh, you know, be accompanied by the Mounties when they in engage in these investigations. They're not supposed to be um, engaging in, in police activities inside our country without uh, the cooperation of our government. So you know, from that point of view, that there's clearly a serious problem here. The issue for me is that you know, it seems that the public inquiry may turn up things that that people in the elite parts of Ottawa don't want to see uh, exposed. You know, yeah. that there may be important people who have become beholden to China, and they'd rather that that not be uh, set out for us all to know about. And in terms of the um, of the um, transparency laws, you know, the, the laws on people who are receiving benefits from a foreign state having to register, that one also seems to be uh, suffering a lot of resistance from you know, the, the the business and political elite of our country. So while people like you and me think this is a no-brainer and it should be done as soon as possible because these kind of activities by a foreign state in Canada are just completely unacceptable, uh, there are a lot of people who uh, would prefer that this just uh, disappear under a rug and not be talked about come fall. And that is because they are involved. We've heard that there's uh, at least a 100 of these investigations. This appears to be the tip of the iceberg. And, and really, we've talked about this before. Really, what other reason can there possibly be? And this is total speculation as to why an inquiry hasn't been called other than it implicates people in high places. That's that's my interpretation, because I can't come up with anything else that makes sense. So. You know, I think that the public has to keep up the pressure, but, uh, you know, it's not really a, a partisan issue because I think there's strong indications that sure. people from all the parties uh, at the senior level who have somehow got themselves uh, tangled up with uh, Chinese influence operations, uh, all of them would, would not like to see this happen because it reflects badly on, on uh, why something wasn't done to crack down on this a long time ago. What happens to Miker, the RCMP, uh, former RCMP in custody? I understand he was going to be in court today. Is there bail involved here? What, what happens to him? Yes, I mean, there is a possibility of bail. I I, uh, I wouldn't give it to him, frankly, but, you know, I'm not a judge. Yeah. Uh, I think with these kind of cases, uh, it's probably too much risk of flight. So uh, I, 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 but I don't know. And, and then there's also the other gentleman, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Marsh, who, you know, is facing similar charges. And these are both people that are well known in the community, in the security community, because they're respected officers of the RCMP. I mean, um, 
uh, Marsh was the former commander of an RCMP international organized crime unit. So, you know, talk about the cops are criminals, uh, if mm. that's what it, it turns out to be. This is a pretty serious indictment of, of our police force. Um, and, you know, I think that we should be uh, really getting to the bottom of this and getting it cleared up. It'll be interesting to see what the rippling effect is in others that are brought into this uh, web. Charles Burton with a senior fellow for the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell Laurie Institute, talking about the ex-Mountie accused of conspiracy, uh, a hired gun for China. Uh, Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. It's great to speak with you. Take care. We have been talking about it all day. I think there's uh, four ministers that have uh, announced they are stepping aside already. The prime minister, a cabinet shuffle rumored uh, possibly by tomorrow. I guess the last couple of days, it's been like an in and out store uh, at the prime minister's office, uh, meeting with various ministers, seeing where their head is at and such. Let's bring in Jonathan Malloy, uh, is a professor at the Department of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Jonathan, thanks for the time. Many have said that this was a little bit deeper, a little bit more far reaching than they originally thought. Are you surprised? Uh, at how deep the shuffle seems to be at this point, although really we've heard nothing yet. It's just all well, speculation, yeah. other than resignation, of course. Yeah, well, there's some rumor. I mean, it, you know, in some ways, it's not surprising at all. I mean, it's we're, we're two years into the government. We've got two years to the next scheduled election. It's summertime. I mean, this, this is when governments usually do a big cabinet shuffle. So in some ways, this is exactly on schedule, exactly on time. Uh, but, of course, you don't really know exactly what's going to happen. And it's a really interesting. Number, the number of ministers that uh, are either announcing the resignation or we're hearing that they might be um, uh, uh, resigning, not, not running for, for re-election, and just all kinds of speculation going around. But, yeah, we, we don't have a lot of hard facts at all, but the actual, the actual shuffle itself is not surprising. Uh, Marco Mendicino, it seems every time there's chatter of some sort of uh, cabinet shuffle, his picture is put up, yet we've heard nothing uh, from him or regarding him. Uh, is this going to be difficult for the prime minister, considering uh, just how much controversy seems to be going on now with uh, ministers not knowing what the staff is, is knows and so on and so forth? Uh, obviously, Mendicino uh, feet being held to the fire in regard to the Bernardo scenario and him not aware of what was going on uh, and, and that sort of thing. There's been some issues of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. How does that complicate things? Well, in some ways, in some ways, it makes the prime minister's job easier because uh, you mentioned Mendocino in, in particular with the Bernardo affair, and also I think maybe Bill Blair with the RCMP issues. There, there's been issues where the the minister seems to have clearly um, screwed up, or the staff, or someone there in a way that's embarrassed the prime minister. That's the key part. It embarrasses the prime minister. So, you know, if, if Marco Mendocino was was left out of cabinet uh, tomorrow. And we'd, we'd at least know the reason in some ways. Now, I'm not sure that necessarily is going to happen. He might get shuffled or something, but he's the most interesting one to watch. And that's why in these cabinet shuffles, you really watch and see who has made an error, who has embarrassed the prime minister, and what does a PM do about it. And sometimes he keeps them. Sometimes he uh, retains them. Uh, Mary Ng would be a good example last year. And, and that's just that, that the, the prime minister does value their services or they have some sort of political clout that, that keeps them in cabinet, uh, regardless of their performance. How does the prime minister justify this when in many cases he has committed the same sort of uh, faux pas that the ministers have, whether it's 
you know, his staff knowing something, he doesn't find out about it. I mean, you know, whether it's CSIS and alleged election interference, whether it's the Paul Bernardo case, uh, you know, it seems that the information got there. It just didn't get to the minister involved. And the prime minister is sort of in the same camp. How does he justify, you know, removing them and sort of being guilty of the same thing? Well, you know, the short answer really is that this, this is facetious, but you know, he's the prime minister and they're not. Uh, and, and think that the, the more substantive issue is that you know when, when voters are, are evaluating the government, they don't they don't think about individual ministers. They might be you know might be incorporated a little bit, but they think about the prime minister. And so yeah. Mr. Trudeau can say whether this is right or not. He can say, uh, you know, I've made some errors, and I you know I've, I've you know I've disclosed in a very sense and 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 this will be reviewed in the, in the election when people vote in the next election. They're going to be voting on on Justin Trudeau a lot more than any individual minister that way. So you know Mr. Trudeau can at least sort of say, well. You know, my name, my name, my name's on the government. I'm ultimately the one that's accountable. People can decide whether or not I'm doing a good job. Whereas the ministers are really part of his team, and they rise and fall based on on his confidence in them. So, you know, that's that's a very cynical response, but I think that's probably the best one. Will this solve the problems for the prime minister? Does this change the channel? Well, that certainly is is going to be the hope of the government when you when you when you do these these big shuffles. I said they're very common. You know, two years in. It's a chance to put a new face on government to try and uh, certainly put put a new sort of image, a sort of you know increasing put put forward the better communicator, put a better face there, and also perhaps bring some new fresh blood into into the cabinet itself. You know, may, you know reward backbenchers uh, and uh, just generally hopefully you know help, help make the government work better by putting competent ministers in, in the best portfolio. So if I mean, the that's, public, that's the prime minister's objective, but whether that's going to happen, we we don't know. If the public uh, sees the prime minister as the person in charge and, and really doesn't follow the ministerial angle of all of this, then how much can this Im- impact can this shuffle have? Well, it, it's hard to say. It's this is you know this is where you turn to the metaphor of shuffling the shuffling the deck chairs in the Titanic. Uh, yeah. This may this may not help help the government much. It's certainly you know, it's, it's it's a reasonable move to make. Um, but uh, Canadians may look look back at them and say, well. You know, they've just moved people around a lot. It's a lot of the same faces, and and we're tired of this government. Or or they might decide, well, you know, there's still a lot in there. There's a lot of talent. In the end, we might we might stick with Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals. But you know, the polls suggest right now people are not sticking with Mr. Trudeau. So it makes sense that he's, he's he wants to make a change. Jonathan Malloy with us, professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University, talking about the imminent cabinet shuffle. Jonathan, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Interesting column in the Globe and Mail from Jake Fuss and Tegan Hill. Canada's economy is stagnating. We must acknowledge this new unpleasant reality. And the first paragraph says, in the latest example of a recurring theme, Finance Minister Christia Freeland, speaking during a recent event in Quebec City, touted Canada's economic growth as the strongest in the G7 and said she's never been more optimistic about the future. In other words, the economy is booming. It's hard to overstate the misleading nature of this narrative, which the Trudeau government has been repeating for months, when in reality, Canada's economy has largely stagnated. That is, economic growth has declined dramatically, and all signs point to this negative trend continuing for the foreseeable future. To talk more about all of this, economist with the Fraser Institute, Tegan Hill, is here now. Tegan, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. Thanks for having me. Tegan, how come we never talk about this? How come this never makes the news? 
Well, I think there's a lot of rhetoric going around that there is strong economic growth in Canada. Um, and the everyday Canadian is just not going to look at the statistics, but the statistics are daunting. Um, first perspective, over the last decade, average growth in per person GDP, and that's a broad measure of income, was at its lowest level since the Great Depression. The government's own forecasts project that real economic growth will be just 0.3% in 2023. And actually, over the longer term, the OECD projects that Canada will record the lowest level of economic growth per person among 32 advanced countries through to 2060. So it needs to be talked about more. Um, the outlook is incredibly dire. Why is this happening? I, I read in this piece that uh, uh, I guess the, the Prime Minister's uh, uh, strategy is this will solve itself by increasing the size of our population, increasing the size of the public sector. How would that work? Or would mm-hmm. it? So, it do- <laughs> unfortunately, it doesn't work. We need things like business investment and a strong private sector for real productivity gains and um, economic growth that will that will truly grow higher incomes and improved living standards. Um, of course, immigration is a great aspect of that, but we can't rely on that um, for economic growth. So those things that we really need, like business investment, unfortunately, are in serious trouble. So just for context, business investment per worker um, and inflation adjusted declined 20% in Canada from 2014 to 2021. And if we compare that to the U.S., it increased 15% in the U.S. over the same period. Um, So there's some big underlying issues going on here. It seems we don't build or create anything anymore and that building is a bad word. And instead, we hand out money and policies designed to help after the fact. For example, the housing situation, uh, which is, of course, municipal, provincial, and federal. But, um, you know, after the fact, we've obviously got a huge housing shortage, and instead of really addressing that, we're coming up with policies to house the homeless. Um, Is building a bad word? No, it's not a bad word. I think that, in general, what you point to is, is a big issue that we have in Canada right now, where instead of you know fostering an environment for businesses to really thrive and for um, you know firms and, and to meet demand wherever that may be and to innovate and experiment and 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 be able to provide for Canadians, we just don't have that type of environment right now. We have incredibly um, high regulatory burdens for businesses at you know many levels. We now have uncompetitive personal income tax rates. We lost our competitiveness on business income taxes. We have the carbon tax, which is escalating fuel taxes, clean fuel regulations, you know, C69 goes on and on and on and on. And all of these regulations and taxes signals to investors, businesses, entrepreneurs, you know, this is not a place to do business. Um, you can expect more of this in the future. And, and that's what really leads to these chronic issues that we see with, you know, business investment, as I referred to previously, um, as just one example that can really impact the economy. What do we need to do as a country to turn this around, to make Canada prosperous again? Mm-hmm. So we need to tackle some of those, those big problems. So we need to have more competitiveness, personal income taxes, business income taxes. We need to reduce the regulatory burden, um, whether that's federally with you know, these massive regulations we've seen in the last couple of years, or locally, uh, you know, looking at Vancouver and and looking at their permit approval processes and, and certain regulations around single-use housing, um, 
they have something coming out next week with that, so that's promising. But it really needs to be every single level of government, um, and it needs to be, again, just reducing those excessive regulations that we've seen kind of culminate in the last um, several years and getting those taxes more competitive so that the, the private sector and businesses can really help Canada thrive and everyday Canadians thrive. We were, we were talking earlier that the, the current government uh, decided that increasing the size of government and increasing immigration would, would fuel the economy. What has it done? Well, you know, immigration does a number of things. There's there's positive aspects, of course, but there's also challenges when we don't have the right policies in place. Just look at housing. So we are, you know, increasing the population incredibly. Um, I think we're projected to increase the population by 1.2 million this year, and that's going to be driven largely by immigration. Um, that is not the same amount of new homes that we're going to see. We're going to see, I think, just above 200,000. So the issue is when, and you know, again, we need to we need to allow homes to be built. How do we do that? We reduce some of this regulation and permit approval processes and other challenges that could be hindering that. Um, so unfortunately, it just leads to kind of a culmination of challenges. You also mentioned, you know, government spending. The government is trying to fix some of these problems, but I think we also need to look at how could it be um, unintentionally contributing to some of the challenges that we're seeing today. So, I mean, this is a this is a big issue and it's, it's complicated, but it really just starts with um, making it easier to do business in Canada. Canada's economy is stagnating. We must acknowledge this new unpleasant reality, says uh, Tegan Hill and Jake Fuss. Tegan, uh, both are economists with the Fraser Institute. Tegan, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Let's bring in Larry Danny, former mayor, city of Hamilton, and former high school principal, and is with us now. Larry, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott. I'm very well. I hope you're well as well. Larry, I got a couple of things I want to throw off you here in, in, in obviously a short amount of time. But um, first of all, you've been mayor. You know what that's like. Uh, homeless, the, the ongoing situation and, and challenge that presents what do you do about the situation that's in virtually every small town, big town, small city, big city across the land in regard to growing homelessness and the tent encampments? Poll question of the day today, how many do you want to see? 85% are saying no tents in parks. How do you handle this? Well, it's a tough issue for sure, but I can tell you this, that um, uh, the current council, at least in terms of uh, um, allowing tents uh, everywhere and anywhere. And we've seen some of the problems, including serious criminal problems, uh, have made matters worse. Um, uh, the, um, the uh, you know, the, the tents that are lining uh, our streets uh, here in Stony Creek, where I live, uh, almost at the corner of, uh, of um, uh, Highway 8 or Queenston Road and, and Highway 20. There are some encampments a little further down the road and, of course, into Hamilton uh, at City Hall and elsewhere. There are tents that are springing up all over the place. And and simply allowing that to happen unfettered um, is is problematic. It's problematic for the image of the, uh, of, uh, of, uh, the city for sure. Uh, but it's not doing the residents of these encampments any favors either. Uh, the squalor that I saw when they were all huddled around a McNabb uh, and Whitehern in Stony Creek uh, was was not something that you want human beings 
in a modern country like ours, in a wealthy country like ours, uh, to be subsisting uh, under those conditions. And so what's the answer? I mean, the problem is easy to spot. Uh, what is the answer? Well, laissez-faire, which seems to be what um, our, some of our counselors are advocating, leave them alone, let them do what they want, uh, is not working. Um, it, this is a solution that cannot be solved by Hamilton alone. It needs all orders of government to assist. And it also needs those who are in encampments and could go to shelters, but they choose not to, either because of their addiction issues, uh, where they want to continue doing drugs and, and they cannot in, in shelters where there are rules, or because they want to carry pets in areas where there's hardly enough room for, for humans, let alone animals. Um, they'd rather stay and live rough, as they say. That cannot be allowed to continue. And so I'm looking forward to some, some control on this issue. I know that council has asked uh, the residents to be, uh, to be uh, um, uh, sought, their opinions to be sought in August. Uh, there's going to be a consultation of sorts, but that should be an honest consultation. It cannot be simply those who advocate a certain political position to show up because those are the people that tend to show up. And it sounds as if everybody in the city wants what they want, which is unfettered encampments mm. that cannot be allowed to stand. It really needs some judicious management on the part of council to make the city look good and provide help where help is needed and provide some tough love in some cases where people are resistant to, to reasonable rules. Um, obviously, there's a long-term and a short-term issue here. Long-term, lack of housing, short-term. What do we do now, what, especially with winter uh, just a couple of months away? This sounds far-fetched, Larry, but I've talked about this on the air. We, we talked about during the pandemic when the hospital systems were uh, pressed to the uh, to the edge that, you know, they were bringing in medical field hospitals and in, 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 in housing like that to help with the situation in hospitals. Is that an option at all? Is that well, it impossible? Should it should be. And there are some empty buildings downtown. Uh, I mean, people talk about Sir John A. McDonald and the school board as being resistant. And, and they're being resistant, by the way, because everybody knows that once you put these folks in there, once once you establish a use, whether it's tiny homes or whether it's it's a, a venue like uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, it's going to be tough to take it away. And there are other buildings downtown as well. Uh, Copley Noise Building, for example, is empty. Uh, maybe uh, it's empty right now. Maybe that that also could be used. Uh, there are other buildings where, in an emergency, for realistic and real problems, people could be put. But the timeline needs to be short. I know that there are plans that people have for Sir John, the Sir John A. site. I know that there are plans for the copy building and, and there are exciting plans. But I'm talking about stopgap uh, solutions and there may be other buildings as well uh, that, that can be called into play. But, but it has to be with a program in mind and not just putting them there and, and leaving them there forever because that doesn't help anybody at all. And the option of these field hospitals that were never used, by the way, um, you know, they were built once in, in short order. Maybe that's what we need to do again. But again, there needs to be discipline and a commitment to a plan that doesn't see us create these 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 shanty towns, for lack of a better word, uh, that doesn't do the residents any favors. Uh, they, they cannot be allowed to exist forever. 
Uh, it seems we're more interested in coming up with policies after uh, a problem has created as opposed to getting ahead of it. And what I keep coming around to, Larry, and obviously we're not going to get to the school board stuff, so we'll ask you to come back on this because this is such an important issue. Uh, what happens in the winter? I mean, a few months from now, it's going to be a completely different environment, and that's everywhere. But, but you know, I where, where were all these encampers um a short while ago, a couple of years ago, I mean, they just didn't exist in, in the same kind of proliferation. And and I'm not downplaying at all the fact that things have gotten a little tougher. COVID has been tough. Uh, uh, people, uh, um, you know, uh, the, the cost of living is higher. And so people have been pushed out. And that is a reality that we must face. And again, Hamilton's not going to solve that all by itself. Everybody needs to be at the table to, to solve those issues. But in the wintertime, uh, even last winter, um, you know, people tend to find other places to go where they're more comfortable. And, and this, the, the summer heat and the summer uh, nicer weather drives them out. But also there's a political agenda to keep this alive so that uh, governments will react, so that more money is uh, placed in, in some of these programs and all well and good. But we need to recognize a real emergency that's there. And the politics around that, uh, that that's also there, um, in, in my opinion, Scott. Larry Deany with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. And we're going to ask him about uh, board, school board stuff, being a former high school principal. But we've run out of time. So we're going to bring you back on the board issue, Larry. But thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. For the last word, this one from Dave on the cabinet shuffle and uh, and ministers leaving. Hello, Scott. It seems the ship Trudeau, which has been listing for several years, is finally beyond saving, and the rats are getting off before it goes under. Better to not run or even resign before the next election than to be tainted by the smell of the impending defeat, a smell that may be harder to wash off than the smell of a skunk spray off your dog. My goodness. Signed, Dave. Keep right except to pass. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.